Previously on the Untitled Beatles podcast. I don't want to do it anymore, Tony. No, we've got to. Uh, if we don't do this, if we don't keep doing this podcast, people are going to just, they're not going to know what to do. They're not going to be able to carry on. Couldn't find the key. Carry on Untitled Beatles podcast. Don't you cry, no. And now, part two. <laughs> two. Two. Untitled Beatles podcast. Well, then we get into, I mean, this is the reason I sought this album out, as I mentioned when I was about in eighth grade. Uh, still remains my favorite Beatles song, and that is an episode we still have yet to tackle, our like top five, ten, whatever favorite Beatles songs. But mine remains Strawberry Fields Forever. We've talked about this song before. Still love it. So help me out with this one, because I believe the definitive version is the Todd Rundgren cover. <laughs> Let me take you down, cause I'm going to. I told you I like the Los Fabulosos Cadillacs version a lot, yeah. too. What is there to say about Strawberry Fields, both in terms of what's there left to say about it, both in terms of what we've already done on this podcast and what people know? First of all, these next two songs, uh, Strawberry Fields and Penny Lane, comprised arguably the greatest Beatles single ever released, or certainly the one that was the most double A sidey of all their singles. Yeah. I mean, not, not including Matchbox and Slow Down. You know, the great debate about which is slow down the A side as much as the B side. I ain't got no matches, but I sure got a long way to go. But it's true. I mean, Strawberry Fields and Penny Lane are two of the most seminal songs. And here they're in the two and three hole. This is why I salivate over Magical Mystery Tour. Side two begins with Hello Goodbye. Nice warm up. Then Strawberry Fields into Penny Lane. Their greatest double A side back to back. And I know people can quibble. Hey Jude and Revolution. We've talked, we all have our own choices. There are some different combinations in the US and in the UK. We've talked about this before. But for my estimation, these two songs are among the greatest and most important Beatles songs, and they're on this album. Yeah. We could talk about the promotional film too, because uh yeah, that was directed by a friend of Klaus Vorman, a Swedish director named Peter Goldman. And he also did the Penny Lane video too, but one of my favorite Beatle visuals as well is the Strawberry Fields Forever promo video, which was shown on uh, Ed Sullivan, or maybe it was American Bandstand, I forget, because we weren't alive. But uh, I, I love the visuals on this as well. It was uh, shot, I think, in January of 67. Um, so, you know, right around the time Pepper was coming about, it was gestating, uh, to use that word. Not one of my favorite words, but we'll use it today. It's better if you whisper it. <laughs> Just dating. <laughs> ASMR Beatles. <laughs> you. <laughs> but yeah, I love the, the, there's also backwards elements in the film. They're by that tree. It goes from day to night. I love that they play with the, the cameras playing with like the temperature. At times they do these uh, rough match cuts where they look warm and then look really cold. George looks like some sort of offshoreman. <laughs> Fisherman, like on a bad trip or with his kooky goggles and his, he's very uh, protected by the, by the elements. And then they play that strange giant kind of looks like a knitting. What, what is that thing? 
It looks like they make like tie-dye shirts out of it or something, you know? It's so strange, and it's a dark video. Yeah. It's a very dark and very trippy video, as opposed to Penny Lane, we're like, wait, are they on horseback in Penny Lane and Strawberry Fields? Yeah. No, just Penny Lane is the horseback bit. Right, because Penny Lane's got that kind of, like Penny Lane, they're off to like a like a rugby match. <laughs> you know? Yeah, they have fine dining in the same location as the Strawberry Fields. It's right. uh, some park, I forget, I didn't write it down, but it's a park in Kent, I want to say. And it was on this day that John Lennon went uh, like on a break and found that Mr. Kite circus poster, which became the inspiration right. for that song. So yeah, it was a... Uh, they were busy. <laughs> it was like every day inspired another thing that we're talking about today. You know, 50 years later, it's, I, I don't know. I'll always love this song. It's got John on acoustic guitar, piano bongos, and the Mellotron. It's Paul who's actually doing the Mellotron intro. I mean, this is the reason why I think I've always loved the sound of the Mellotron, which is just tape loop samples of instruments like flutes, trombones, etc. But I love that sound. Even on, wasn't there some Coldplay song that's got it all over it? Those Mellotron flutes. Oh, this one. <laughs> Fuck Coldplay. <laughs> I know. I know. That's a... I wasn't trying to send it. you off on a Coldplay rant, but there was one of those <laughs> pop songs from like the early outs where uh, a Mellotron was really high in the mix. And uh, again, I wasn't a fan of whatever the band was, but I would hear it at bars and I was like, oh, that's the Strawberry Fields oh, tone. Yeah, that was John Cougar Mellotron. <laughs> Oh, somebody's got to do that. Somebody's got to do cougar songs all on Mellotron sounds. I would buy that. Whatever, whoever asshole does that, I'll buy it. We, we, we have the most dated novelty acts of all time. All right, 2021, I'm thinking uh, John Cougar Mellotron, a little bit of Beatles, a little bit of the Cougs. The one thing that's interesting about uh, this part of the album is up until 1988, at least in the States, 
you only got fake stereo versions of this, and I'm pretty sure Penny Lane and All You Need Is Love, what they called duophonic, but it wasn't really duophonic. It was just kind of replicating stereo. So it was kind of a a revelation when they started pressing vinyl copies of this with the song in true stereo. Most of the states had never heard it in true stereo until the 80s. That's true. And I think George Martin actually didn't get around till doing a stereo mix of a lot of these songs until the early 70s. So it's not like the mixes existed. It was uh, it was kind of rush released some of these things. So they just did the mono for things like "Baby You're a Rich Man" and stuff to be the B side of uh, "All You Need Is Love." Yeah, love this song, Strawberry Fields. We'll come back to it again on some other podcast because I I still have things to say about it, but it's one of my favorites, uh, if not my favorite, for most of my adult life. It's funny because we love the Beatles pretty equally and evenly. And amongst two Beatles nerds, the way we can both feel about that song, because I've said this before, we did our our 45s episode. It is not one of my favorite Beatles songs. And simultaneously, I recognize it is one of the greatest and most important Beatles songs. I'm more of a Penny Lane guy. I mean, whatever you want to call the A side of this I guess Strawberry Fields. What was technically the the A side must have been Penny Lane because Strawberry Fields was not on Beatles One, which is yeah. a terrible, terrible. Again, sorry from me to you. Bye bye. <laughs> well, the thing is, Strawberry Fields didn't make it to number one, right? So it couldn't be on the one thing. Isn't that the deal? Yes, but it was part of a single that made it to number one. <laughs> that's where it counts but uh yeah there's something about the penny lane to me is the best distillation in the beatles career of paul's brilliance plus his love for music hall whimsy there is no song paul mccartney ever wrote with the beatles that is better at conveying sunny nostalgia in a modern way. That's just it. It doesn't feel antiquated like uh, your mother should know or when I'm 64. This is sun-drenched, mid-late 60s nostalgia with this brassy optimism and incredible key change. I just think this is Paul at just about his very best. I agree with you, man. We might actually see it a little differently because, and I don't know if we mentioned this before when we did the singles thing, but to me, I agree with you about the sunny part being the chorus with the blue suburban skies, you know, and that horn arrangement that feels very suburban and like pop and great. But the verse is what I think I really like the most because it gets into that minor chord detour that gets, it gets a little dissonant spooky yeah it's actually kind of spooky 
So to me that I always see the the part in the verse as being cloudy because they're also talking about rain, right? And the firemen and all that. And seeing these people, there's something about when he starts talking about the people in this village, it feels like something in the town is off or amiss or like Amityville a little bit. There's There's a spooky thing going on there. I totally see that. And it just, it brings so much more glory to that sunshiny chorus. Yes. That's a perfect push and pull Paul thing where he's got the minor, the dissonance, the weird storytelling, then an explosion of perfect British pop major key chorus. It's breathtaking. It's cool. Yeah. And so, yeah, there's like four flutes and piccolos on this. There's four trumpets, a flugelhorn, an oboe a cor anglais, and a double bass. Every time I'm in New Orleans, we go to Cafe Du Monde and get a cor anglais. <laughs> it's just what we do. Yeah, and you dip it in your coffee and you walk around uh, <laughs> that park over there. I took the ferry across. Uh, the Mersey? Yeah, man. Yeah, I did a Jerry and the Pacemakers in New Orleans. Ferry, cross the Mersey. You don't hear that song enough. <laughs> <laughs> and here I'll stay. Did the Beatles didn't write, no, John and Paul didn't write Fairy Cross the no, Mersey. No, no. But it was, you know, the Mersey beat sound, right? So fairy, cross the Mersey. And there are a few different versions. I know we uh, recently talked about the uh, the piccolo trumpet that gives the, what, the Canadian pressing its distinction, that little outro. Uh, I, don't e- I don't even know if that's Canadian or just an early North American promo issue on 45 that they that they didn't issue as the master single. Got it. But it's impossible for me. It always will be. Right now, Ringo just does kind of that trill on the cymbal Mm -hmm. to end it as it swells a bit. But I always want to hear bum, 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 bum. If I could change anything about the Beatles, it'd be that and speeding up She's Leaving Home even more in the mono version. Even more. Do the chipmunk sing the Beatles version? Alvin! <laughs> L- a lot of mean white people in that era. Dave Seville. Alvin! Ralph Cramden. Alice, will you shut up? A lot of yelly white. I mean, there's a lot yeah. of shitty white people now, Fred. too. But Fred Flintstone. <laughs> a lot of yelling white people. Yeah, I remember my friend Elaine when we were take the bus to school. Or, and I don't know why we were talking about the Flintstones. but And this is when we were kids. I remember her saying like, Fred Flintstone, he's kind of an asshole. (laughs) (laughs) And I was like, yeah, he is frowning a lot. (laughs) Uh, He's a jerk, and Barney's the drunk friend who doesn't have the nuts to confront Fred. Yeah. You ought to be ashamed of yourself. But also that other version of Penny Lane that's on the anthology films, the TV show, the special, where there's a whole different instrumental part that doesn't have the piccolo trumpet hit that high, whatever, that high note going back into the chorus. There's a whole different instrumental passage that sounds way more straight. It's a clean machine. I think Tony George Martin Frankenstein that for anthology. 
Okay. My understanding is George Martin, and that happened a couple times, had another take of Penny Lane uh, that didn't have the finished uh, uh, Dave Mason. Is that Dave Mason? I keep forgetting. We just disagree on who that is. I think it's Dave Mason doing the piccolo trumpet, right? I for- I actually forget. While you're looking. It's on Been the- away. Haven't seen you in a while. How have you been? That's Dave Mason, too. Have you changed your style and do your thing? We're looking it up right Penny now. Penny Lane. Penny Lane. Who plays on it? Okay, David Mason is the first one listed as a trumpet player. Yeah, I think he did that piccolo solo. Uh, yeah, so I think George Martin flew a different idea for a solo into that take. That might be a Frankenstein take that Anthology should have let you know about. Like, yes, it is. Fading into the actual master of yes, it is for no fucking reason. <laughs> yeah. When the bootleg on Ultra Rare Tracks would have done just fine. Yeah. But John gets goofy. Uh, uh, why? Mm-hmm. Like, oh... Beatles completists don't want to hear John get goofy. Let's just fade this out. It's all we want to hear. Yeah, we want to hear the warts and all. We don't need it dressed up and like, well, guys, they 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 did take the song seriously <laughs> at some point. Don't 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 don't, don't worry, guys. Don't worry. <laughs> we we know like, because we all know it. it. Why why put it on there? It it, it makes absolutely no sense. Let's move on to a track that is the one non-Hall of Fame considered hit on side two, but is a great song and has always been one of my favorites, Tony. And it's once again, despite being a B-side to one of their biggest selling singles ever, is still relatively Beatle obscure. And that's Baby, You're a Rich Man. Yeah. Do you fucking love this? I love this song. <laughs> it's not one of my favorites. I'll I'll say it. It's not one of my favorites. But I like the sounds on it. I like the bass being really high up in the mix. And I like the clavioline that Lennon plays. I guess it's sped up. That's why it's so really fast. And he's got some nimble fingers. It sounds like an Indian instrument on this song. Yeah, that or or an oboe. In fact, I think I thought it was an oboe forever. But yeah, it's the clavioline, which is like a little uh, keyboard that was used. Uh, we've talked about it before on up other episodes, but used in uh, recently mentioned Joe Meek production, Telstar. And uh, famously used in uh, Runaway, I believe, is where you may have first ever heard that sound in the yeah. solo. It can't play chords. It can only play one note at a time. So it gives it. So when you squirrel around on the keys, you can, you can really hit a lot of notes. <laughs> you you just became Barney Rubble. I did. I did. You got me doing a solo, and I see it as more of a duet. Okay, I love this one. Paul's bass to me sounds the most like he's doing a Motown song in any song in the Beatles catalog. His bass is ripping in this song. I actually, I I love both the stereo and mono versions of the song. I feel like the bass is almost more prominent in the stereo version. It just kind of just, it's it's relentless. This song made it to number 34 as a B-side. I didn't even realize this song charted, but it did as a B-side.
lyrics are always interesting to me because Lennon's commentary in this seems kind of self-referential. You know, I, I never understood what you keep all your money in a big brown bag inside a zoo. What a thing to do. I never understood what that meant. I still don't. Yeah. You know what? Honestly, yeah. I think that's maybe one of my things with it is that it it feels a little tossed off. It feels a little bit like he had this idea. This is John with the verse and Paul with the chorus. This is one of those. This is like a, a day in a life and uh, I've got a feeling in a way or even a we can work it out, you know, where it's an actual Lennon-McCartney song. Yeah. And so John has the the verse, uh, how does it feel to be one of the beautiful people? This is 67. This is kind of the way, you know, in the San Francisco scene, that's kind of how they were talking, that they, this, you know, the new kids. They were the new kids <laughs> from New Jersey. <laughs> you know, they were all hanging tough at Monterey and <laughs> putting flowers in gum barrels <laughs> and... Uh, <laughs> But yeah, yeah. And this is actually a song that when George went to visit San Francisco in August, uh, August 7th of 1967, he played a few bars of this song. He strummed it on that acoustic guitar wearing those heart-shaped glasses and trying to get away from spotty kids in what he described as a Bowery. <laughs> a Bowery. He called them, I think he called them grotty. I think oh, that's the, is that what it is? the grotty kids. I remember yeah, the, he referred to Charles Manson as a Californian shag nasty. I always <laughs> thought that was great. God, I love George. Oh my God, I love him. Yeah, and it's funny because for as much as the Beatles contributed to the Summer of Love and the Summer of 67 Spirit, they just as quickly, by the time India and the White Album came up, were over it. It's funny how the Beatles and Stones are both like, we did it, now fuck that. <laughs> In 68. Yeah, you know. They had a keen instinct for when things were over and when to start looking for new things. And they were generally the Beatles were kind of in first place with a lot of that stuff. That's so well said. I think that instinct came from boredom. I think they mm. eventually, whether it was touring or the psychedelic stuff after a while or just singing songs, uh, I love you, we, he loves her, all that stuff. Right. They just got bored and they were so relentlessly creative and competitive that's why they kept pushing the envelopes. Also, I recently read it somewhere that George Martin described himself as getting bored easily. And that, I think, obviously plays into his adventurous scoring ideas and openness to experimentation. What a gift to have George Martin by their side, even in days like this when George wasn't as much in control as he'd been on certainly on, on earlier albums. Uh, there's a cover of this that is concurrent with you and me growing up from a really funny movie called Disorderlies <laughs> by an early mid 80s rap band called not the Gap Band. Nobody dropped the bomb <laughs> on anybody. The Fat Boys. Yeah, I remember the Fat Boys. I like the Fat Boys. Remember their cover of this tune from Disorderlies? It's worth checking out. And in fact, here's a clip of it. Yeah, the human human beatbox, I believe, was uh, yeah. I forget that guy's name, but it, um, I mean, I remember kids at school doing that. And, bah, yeah, and, 
you know, getting saliva all over the place. <laughs> Nothing like a white kid with braces trying to beatbox. <laughs> The album closes either way with uh, the hit single from 67, All You Need Is Love. Now, like Baby a Rich Man, this too was uh, initially recorded at Olympic Sound Studios, and they later went to Abbey Road to finish it. Yeah, the, a lot of this record was recorded outside of Abbey Road because it was booked, etc. I guess it was a busy, you know, Pink Floyd was doing Piper at the Gates of Dawn and all that. Not to be confused with Piper at the Gates of Dong. Yeah, I mean, you know, what can be said about this song? I mean, we I think we've already talked about its association with with the uh, Our World broadcast, the first globally simulcast musical piece ever in television history. And you know, this song is so important. It is a classic. Uh, has all you need is love held up in your mind the way other favorite people I almost put this in the category of yesterday. It's great, it's important, it's brilliant, I salute it, I don't need to hear it for a little while. <laughs> I am with you 100% on that, yeah. It is so funny, I was like hanging out with my mom a couple years ago, she was in Los Angeles visiting, and it was, you know, it was what it was, we sometimes got into some fights and whatever, and I'm driving her back to the airport, and I remember she was, I think, trying to just kind of mend things because it was just such a stressful visit. And I remember her saying, like, maybe All You Need Is Love, I think, came on the radio. And she was like, hey, Tony, All You Need Is Love. And I, I turned to her and I said, not one of their best songs. <laughs> <laughs> oh, snap. <laughs> asshole. I am an asshole. On record. Sorry, Mom. I'm sorry I'm such an asshole sometimes. But, uh, yeah, it's not my favorite tune by them. I... I like it, though. I do like it. And I always thought that one Traveling Wilburys song that hit ripped it off the chorus a little bit. Da-da-da-da-da, it's all right. Uh, are you thinking of the Roy Orbison song produced by Jeff Lynne so it sounded like a Traveling Wilbury song? Uh, <laughs> yes. Same thing, same era. The Roy <laughs> Orbison comeback, and then, of course, Dylan hadn't killed because Roy Orbison was getting so much attention. <laughs> no one talks about that. The Bob Dylan murder of Roy Orbison's not discussed enough. <laughs> yes. Uh, yeah. For your, for your, our conspiracy minded listeners, that was for you. Uh, I'm on the record as saying that Bob Dylan did not kill Roy Orbison. Just FYI. I'm but. on the record in saying we don't know. And yes, I was at the Capitol. And yes, I think Marjorie Taylor Greene is smart. So you have to trust what I say. <laughs> <laughs> Anything you, want, you, got it. you and I think of the song the same way And listen, there's I don't dislike this song There's a lot about the song I love The coda, the tag is so brilliant With It's like early sampling The like Glenn Miller and, Yeah, um, In the Mood is sampled Green Sleeves There's some of Bach in there A Brandenburg concerto And of Sebastian. course <laughs> Yeah yeah, man. Was who was he in? Poison? No. What band was Sebastian Bach? That in? band was Poison. <laughs> and hoo, hoo, hoo. Skid um, Row. Wait, well, he was in I, one of those hair bands, man. I think it was in Skid Row. 
Okay, um, there also, you go. Great uh, second song from Little Shop of Horrors. Nobody ever talks about that, now do they? There you go. And then uh, singing a bit of She Loves You, which feels generations old. But it does. Really, She Loves You was what, by then, four years old? Four and a half years old? Uh, Yeah, I guess so. Yeah. Yeah, 63, right? It was about four. So think about, it's 2021. Think about 2017. Like, I mean, it four years feels like a generation in pop and in rock music. And... To kind of go back and have that self-referential moment, they were no longer touring, a little bit of She Loves You and the song's Fade Out, gives the song, I mentioned Glass Onion before, gives kind of a Glass Onion-y kind of yeah. tip of the hat to the fans that got them there type of moment. Yeah, here begins kind of the self-referential bit that would yeah. uh, come and go, especially through the White Album. Some backing vocalists of note include Mick Jagger, who also purportedly sings on Baby, You're a Rich Man. Yeah, I've read that, but I don't know if it's true. I could hear it in those choruses maybe at the end on the fade out, maybe. There's something that's kind of Jagger and kind of out of tune sometimes there. Not to diss on Jagger, I'm just he had his he had his style, which was not about melody; it was about feel and all that. You've always said that you prefer the Maroon Five song "Moves Like Jagger" to anything Mick Jagger ever did. <laughs> I have always said that, and I will continue to say that. Put that also on my tombstone pizza, and make it snappy. How long is it going to take to get a tombstone pizza in this mouth? Also on this, uh, Keith Richards. So this is, you know, they invited a bunch of friends to to the Our World simulcast satellite thing to actually make it look a little more like hippie, youthful. And so everyone's in their fab gear and all that. So Mick Jagger, Keith Richards, Marianne Faithful, of course. Jane Asher was there as well as Mike McCartney, Patty Harrison, Eric Clapton. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Graham Nash was there, as well as Keith Moon from The Who, Hunter Neither Davies. Neither of whom remember. Yeah. <laughs> right. And uh, George Martin did the score. By the way, he was paid 15 pounds for the score. Mm. But I guess he used a part of Glenn Miller's In the Mood that required him to pay it back. So he thought uh, In the Mood was in the public domain, but not the part he used, apparently. Love is all you need. Love is all you need. Love is all you need. 
It's another estimation of George Martin's contribution to be able to kind of make those choices and, and put that in there. It's a beautiful song. It's a meaningful song. It it opens the kids cartoon Beat Bugs, which is the officially sponsored by the Beatles or licensed by the Beatles. Uh, they use a kind of a kids version of it. So my son knows that kids version, which is kind of cool. It's a good message. It's a great message. Some would say it was one of John's more trite messages. I call bullshit on that because the simplicity of the message is part and parcel to what that summer was all about, right? That summer of love is just repeating that word literally. It's also, by the way, it gave the Cirque du Soleil show its title and is the finale in Cirque du Soleil's love. Yeah, you know... A while back, I went to this place out in the desert called Salvation Mountain. You should check it out. It's near Slab City. It's in California. It's like a three-hour drive east of Los Angeles. And it's kind of this place where all these like um, kind of societal dropouts hang out and kind of live off the land. And yeah, it's this mountain that was built and it's painted and it, it was built from just like rubbish. And it's, it's, it's beautiful. And I went there years ago and met the guy who started it all. He was a guy named Leonard Knight. And I remember him saying to keep love simple. That was his like kind of philosophy on life. And, uh, it's also a great Barry White song. (laughs) Well, yeah, I mean, if you put some buttery strings on that and, uh, a nice mellow hi-hat forward beat and I mean, you can sell anything you want. (laughs) (laughs) no but that message really resonated with me and and so yeah speaking to this song all you need is love sure you can call it trite and sure you can call it maybe overly optimistic or you know okay well how do you do that but i think if you just have that running in your head if you're going through life and coming from a place of love i think that's going to benefit you more than the opposite side of the coin, perhaps, uh, to take Paul McCartney's angle on being the positive of the two in this binary world, <laughs> which yeah. is not binary, but no, nor, nor should it be. Yeah, yeah. Um, there's, uh, I think, Nebworth '85, uh, <laughs> where Paul did. Uh, he came on for that really unfortunate uh, "Let It Be," where you couldn't hear his microphone. Elvis Costello played that same show. Correction. Elvis Costello actually played the song at Live Aid 1985, not Nebworth. And played the song and introduced it as an old Liverpool folk song, which that's and cool. Th- this is 85, so it's less than what 18 years after. Um, right. Not second Skid Row reference. 18 in life to go. <laughs> Your crime is time, and it's is that that might be Skid Row, might not. That's be. Skid Row. Yeah, okay. that in Youth Gone Wild. Yeah. Okay, <laughs> that and downtown where the food is slop, downtown where you call a cop, downtown, oh, Ashman and Mencken for you, uh, musical theaters, McCartney and Lennon, Ashman and Mencken, also Martini and Rossi, Asti Spumanti, <laughs> remember that? I do remember that. 
remember. Yeah, those are the wine guys, right? <laughs> they were like 80s the up, wine They were people. the upscale Bartles and James. Martini and Rossi, Hasty's Blumanti, when you got good taste, it's your yeah, they were the kind of wine that you put in your fountain at uh, <laughs> stupid parties. <laughs> look at my look at my wine fountain. It's right here next to the bowl of condoms. Who are you? <laughs> um, but yeah, so uh, this is only eighteen years later, and even to hear Elvis Costello at the time. Elvis Costello was kind of punk, kind of rock. You know I love Elvis Costello. Uh, but for him, introducing it as an old Liverpool folk song was charming and true. I want you to help me sing this old Northern English folk song. There's nothing you can do that can't be done. There's nothing you can sing that can't be sung. Nothing you can say, but you can learn how to play the game. It's easy. All you need is love. All you need is love. All you need is love. And love is all you need. This song almost feels like a national anthem of love. With the French national anthem right, in the beginning. Right. <laughs> Which is how I know it. Generations of Beatle fans. And listen, I'm no Francophile. All right, now let's uh, briefly talk about why there hasn't been a super deluxe version of this classic Beatles LP. Okay, I'm guessing it's because they didn't want to do anything that would upstage Sgt. Pepper. So if you were to do a 50th of Sgt. Pepper, this deluxe box set would have come out four months later. Right. Uh, yeah. You know, uh, so eventually they're going to have to get to remixes of everything pre-Sgt. Pepper. This and Yellow Submarine. Uh, Yellow Submarine was remixed in 99 as part of the song track, but yeah. not remixed with the same engineers or technology as now, of course. But yeah, man, I'd love for this to have a remix. This is just, it's such a strange album. And we mentioned as we kind of wrap at the beginning of the show, there's so many different versions of this. Uh, the one to seek out on vinyl, my favorite one is the copy that has the C1 prefix. So this would be from 1988 when they reissued all the vinyl. What's cool about it, it's right, the, with purple the purple capital label. vinyl yeah. that also has the Apple logo on it. So it's a really neat, weird hybrid of the last vinyl pressings until the one from 2012. It sounds really good. It's the first vinyl pressing, at least in the States, in true stereo. Mobile Fidelity, which had all the expensive versions of like half-speed mastered Beatles stuff, Mobile Fidelity had an album that had the B-side and fake stereo and the cassette tape, which I don't own. The cassette tape was in true stereo. There are completists. I don't have this, but there is a German pressing of this from the 70s that people say is the best sounding version of this vinyl. It's on the label Whore Zoo, which was the original McCartney lyric, Whore Zoo. <laughs> Don't make it bad. Paul was really trying to write songs about different EMI subsidiaries. Also, whore zoo sounds like the punchline of an Andrew Dice Clay joke. Yeah, definitely. And she was at the whore zoo. 
Oh, <laughs> stick that up your whore zoo. Oh, well, I suppose. Yeah. So all those versions of I am the walrus could probably be on an expanded edition. It might get a little repetitive, though, like between all the different six bar, four bar. I've heard some version like before the second verse. There's even like a couple extra bars of sound effects. You can find that on Rarities, the the U.S. Rarities album, never on CD. Yeah, it's got it's, uh, right before Yellow Matter Custard. I'm pretty yeah. sure there's extra a few extra beats. And then you got some of the film music, so things like um, Jesse's Dream, which again it sounds it's basically like an extension of the flying outro, all that Mellotron noodling. Same thing with Aerial Tour Instrumental. There's something called Shirley's Wild Accordion, which mm-hmm. is a session that John Lennon produced. So it's Shirley Evans on accordion and her partner Reg Whale on percussion. Apparently Paul plays maracas and Ringo plays drums, but I've never I've never heard that version. I've never heard any drums, but it was uh, October 12th at uh, Delane Lee Studios. <laughs> The song Death Cab for Cutie yeah. in, inspired the band, pretty good band actually, called Death Cab for Cutie. They do they do interesting stuff. Right. And that was, of course, the the Bonzo Dog Duda band. So they would yep. Yeah, you'd have to figure that out, I suppose, because they're they were on a different label and all that. I forget what they were on. DECA. Anyway. Yeah, you could put things like hello, hello, take one on there. I would actually like so I have this on a bootleg and they have not done this yet. But the full version of Christmas Time is here again, which is like six minutes. That'd be fun. And that would be without the Christmas messages in there that you do here on the uh, three and a half minute version, which I believe was a B-side of one of those uh, Three Dolls singles. Yeah, it was a B-side to Free as a Bird. There was also an early take of I Saw Her Standing There on that CD single. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's so funny because Christmas Time is here again. They reissued those Christmas 45s a couple years ago, but didn't do it digitally. Because it's only a B-side, I don't think you can find that streaming anywhere. No, no, that's one you can't hear, yeah. It's wild. Yeah, I like, I, there's something about that song I really like, and I, I do, that's one of the few Christmas songs I will sing around Christmas. <laughs> Rely on your Jewish pal here, man. My favorite <laughs> holiday in the history of holidays is Christmas. And since I've been about 12, I've walked around singing O-U-T spells out. out. 
Ringo. <laughs> oh, UT spells out. What is that? Just what is that? It's so great. <laughs> we, we will do for Christmas next year a whole uh, episode on all on all the uh, the Christmas songs. Yeah, and maybe just one on George Harrison's "Ding Dong Ding Dong." <laughs> Yeah, forget the other Beatle Christmas songs. Just ding dong, ding dong. <laughs> Not George's greatest single. That's also when he was gargling with cocaine to make his throat better when he was on tour. Yeah, it, I mean, I'd buy the box set of this. They reissued the film a couple years ago on DVD. And the box set of that comes with a new pressing of the British EP on 180 gram vinyl, which is Ooh. which is kind of cool. It's the only place you could you can buy that. It is such a great Beatles record that the Beatles never intended to be an LP in their catalog. And what came after it was an even weirder album in the White Album, and then they rewind back to a lot of songs from this era with the Yellow Submarine soundtrack. So in many ways, Sgt. Pepper was the height of mid to late period Beatles, and then Magical Mystery Tour kind of takes us firmly into the late era. That's how I've always looked at it. Yeah. Yeah, it's still one of my favorite albums. I would love it if they did a reissue on it. Maybe, uh, yeah, maybe they can dust off those tapes and find some, maybe there's stuff we've never even heard. You never know. That seems to happen every now and then. So I'd love to be, uh, further enlightened by this, uh, this title that has, uh, at least visually always drawn me in. And I was, uh, happy that it did because it, it has a lot of really colorful songs on there. Well, Tony, as the Beatles would say, man, I'm happy just to rap with you. <laughs> As the kids say, TJ, you do you. Yeah, and I'll be you, too. Y'all gonna be there. <laughs> Next week, the Beatles, Michael McDonald, the intersection you always wanted. <laughs> I, I, I would take sweet freedom over flying. I would take a uh, human beatboxes version of <laughs> what is that? Wipeout. Is that his official name from the Fat Boys? I thought so. <laughs> Fat Boys Wipeout is great. Also, how was that never used in a Charmin commercial? Untitled Beatles podcast. Like and subscribe. Sorry, Casey. That's a long one. Is this a two-parter? Man, oh, I don't no. know. I don't know.